Hi, my name is Donald Quist, and welcome to the Seinfeld Book Report, a podcast about what folks were reading in the 90s sitcom Seinfeld. Today we're looking at The Stock Tip, the fifth episode of season one. I'll chat about the romanticism of Vermont, my versions to B&Bs, and discuss the origins of Superman. Giddy up. So we're back. Welcome to another episode of the Seinfeld Book Report. I've been debating on whether or not to keep a the. Like, do we need an article before it? I think I don't want an article. I, I think it'll just be Seinfeld Book Report. Yeah, I like the sound of that. Um, I'm glad that you're still here. Glad that you're with me. And we're moving into another episode. First, we start with a segment I like to call Corrections, in which I address issues from the previous episode. Um, as this project continues to go on, and I refine it and make it stronger, I like this like accountability, this moment of reflection. In the previous episode, I was talking about Kwame Dawes, um, specifically about one of his maxims, all memory is fiction. And in that discussion, I misspoke and I said, memory is infallible. That is not what I meant. I meant the opposite. Memory is fallible. Um, oftentimes, we are sure something happened a certain way, but that ends up being not true. Um, so no, I'm not, <laughs> I was not trying to be ironic or anything. Um, I agree with Kwame Dawes. I believe that all memory is a kind of fiction. I also believe in truths. I don't believe in a single truth. Um, what might be true to someone might not be another person's truths. I believe in cognitive dissonance, holding in multiple ideas in the same space, uh, making room for there to be different experiences than other people. Like each of us experiences something different than someone else. Um, there are differences in color, um, differences in sight, sound, taste. So why would memory be objective? It can't be. In the previous episode, we talked about the premiere of The Penguin, a Batman villain, um, played by Danny DeVito in Tim Burton's Batman, um, played by Colin Farrell, I think, in this recent adaptation of Batman. Um, but I forgot to mention Penguin's writer and artist and creator. Penguin was created by Bill Finger, who was the writer for that first issue in which he appeared, and was illustrated by the GOAT, Bob Kane. I don't know how I forgot to mention Bill Finger and Bob Kane. Many apologies. I love the Penguin. Also, I didn't mention one of the funniest aspects to me in the previous episode I discussed in The Robbery. One of the best aspects of this is when Jerry Seinfeld's character arrives back home to his apartment in New York. Elaine, played by Julie Louis-Dreyfus, comes out of one of the back rooms, presumably the bathroom, and is just holding a plunger. That that little detail I find so amazing and hilarious. She just has a plunger. She's carrying a plunger. She's looking haggard. And I guess we're presuming that the she clogged the toilet. Um, and this is so subversive 
for mainstream primetime television in the 90s. And it's just, it's just, that's, it doesn't, and no one talks about the fact that she's holding a plunger or that her hair is in her face. She, she just has a plunger, which again, uh, I love Elaine Bennis. I love Elaine. Such a great detail. So those are corrections for the previous episode. Glad you're back. Now we'll get into talking about the stock tip. The stock tip was first aired June 21st, 1990. Here's a quick synopsis of the episode. Our boy George Costanza tells Jerry Seinfeld and Elaine Bennis that a friend of a friend has given him a stock tip. And he encourages them to invest with him in a company that we're not entirely sure what they do or make. Um, it, that never really gets explained. Jerry does so, but as soon as he does, the value of his stock falls. At the same time, Jerry takes his girlfriend on a trip to Vermont, which does not go as planned. So that is the synopsis of the episode. Fun fact... Seinfeld fun facts. A Seinfeld fun fact. The episode was written by Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld and received ratings and praise good enough to commission a second season. This is the episode that made it possible for a second season to be commissioned. Um, It all hinged on this. So I will say in this episode, things kind of crystallize in a way that it didn't in previous episodes. There's just charm oozing out of the episode. It is it is probably their strongest in the first season. So, speaking to that charm, Elaine is like trying to balance a spoon on her nose while the boys are arguing over Superman, which is actually um, one of our first literary references in the episode. So Jerry and George are arguing over if Superman being exceptional in everything else would have a great super sense of humor. Um, It's a hearty debate. I don't think he would. Um, But (laughs) that's just, I just don't think Superman is funny. Um, So about Superman, Superman was first introduced to us on April 18th, 1938 in action comics. Number one, um, His creators are Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. Jerry Siegel was the writer. Joe Shuster was the artist. A little background about Superman, in case you don't know. As a distant planet is destroyed by old age, a scientist places his infant son in a space capsule and launches it toward Earth. And the capsule is found by a passing motorist who brings the baby to an orphanage where the child astounds the attendants with his superhuman powers. The child, who is named Clark Kent, can jump over buildings, lift enormous weights, and run faster than a freight train. Furthermore, his skin is impenetrable. Realizing that he has powers far beyond normal humans, Clark dedicates himself to serve humanity as Superman, the champion of the oppressed. So, yeah, I don't like Superman. Um, Jerry Seinfeld is obviously a fan, and there will be many more Superman references ahead in this series and on this podcast, but Superman has always been kind of whack to me. Um, don't at me on this. Um, he's just doing too much. Does that make sense? Like, he just, 
you can't have all the things, Superman. And then the only thing that, like, can stop him is something also not of this world. I just never could connect with Superman. I appreciate what he is as a symbol for other people. Um, specifically, like, um, Superman being birthed from the Jewish community. I can understand how important Superman is, um, to, like, the culture. Um, but he's just not one of my favorite superheroes. Um, I mentioned the amazing adventures of Cavalier and Clay in the previous episode. Um, I will also consider that a, a high recommendation for this episode as well, since we're talking about Superman. Um, so please check out that book. Another thing we see people reading throughout this episode is the New York times, specifically business day. Um, if you're not familiar with the New York Times, the New York Times is a daily newspaper based in New York City with a worldwide readership report in 2022 to compromise 740,000 paid print subscribers and 8.6 million paid digital subscribers. Um, this surprised me. Um, the 700,000 paid print subscribers... I was surprised that it was under a million, and maybe I'm naive, um, but I just thought it would be more than that. But I also have to check myself, because I guess I don't have a print subscription either, so that's on me. Um, the New York Times will appear, again, several times throughout the series. Um, it is the paper that they go to often. Um, in this episode, of course, George is checking it to see where stocks are at, see how the stock tip that they took is faring. So, makes sense. Another storyline in the episode involves Jerry taking a new girlfriend up to Vermont. Um, that really is a huge test in a relationship, and I think it really lends some much-needed universality for the show to connect with a wider audience. I think part of the reason why it succeeded in critical and um, commercial praise, rating praise is because this was one of the first episodes where I think they incorporated relationship stuff that other folks could identify with. Um, I think many people can relate to going on that first trip as a couple as a kind of test to see if this is going to work out. And so that, that really helps narratively um, to ground the viewer, the observer, in this action, in this plot. Um, I actually went to grad school in Vermont. I got some thoughts on Vermont. Um, it's beautiful, and it has served as a kind of home to me. So shout out to Montpelier. Vermont, I love you. The state is naturally beautiful, as I said, um, but it gets idealized in a way that allows its population oftentimes to ignore the ways it can fail people of color. That's So whenever I see like Vermont idealized or romanticized in television, I, I have a an inherent wariness of it um, because I know that like as a state, it's not as liberal as folks claim it to be. Even when I was going to school there, I still experienced racism there. Like, many spots didn't feel comfortable, um, especially as I was driving through, as a large black dude. Um, 
And whenever I try to explain this to some of my more well-meaning white friends, they'd attempt to reason it away. Um, they didn't mean to do it, but I, I think they needed the idea of Vermont's liberal goodness. I think we aspire to <laughs> Vermont's liberal, this idea of Vermont's liberal goodness. Um, it's part of the state's narrative. Like it, yeah, it came together. Like the state formed July 2nd, 1777. Um, in response to abolitionists' calls across the colonies to end slavery, Vermont became the first colony to ban it outright. Um, and not only did Vermont's legislator agree to abolish slavery entirely, it also moved to provide full voting rights for African American males. So it, it's a part of its lore. It's a part of a larger northeastern um, coastal lore that I think a lot of people want to preserve. This idea of like fairness and equity being ingrained into the DNA of the Northeast. But that's not always the truth. Um, going with the Superman theme, it's kind of like Vermont is bizarro Oregon or like Oregon Oregon's like good twin I always compare these two um Portlanders don't come for me I love that city but y'all know y'all know um Oregon had the largest Ku Klux Klan membership per capita in the United States through the first half of the 20th century and y'all know centuries of exclusion violence and intimidation has resulted in Portland being among the widest major cities in the United States. Um, I think recently I just read that Portland is 87% white. Um, so anyway, um, <laughs> that was a digression. Back to Vermont. Um, I guess I'm just, like I said, a little bit wary whenever uh, Vermont is idealized in media. Um, a good, a good counter to this. There's a poem by Audre Lorde that I love that perfectly, to me, encapsulates my experience in Vermont and offers another view of this space. Um, so it's called Every Traveler Has One Vermont Poem. Again, it's by Audre Lorde, and I'm going to read it to you. So here we go. Spikes of lavender astir under Route 91. Hide a longing or confession. I remember when air was invisible. From Chamberlain Hill down to Lord's Creek, tree mosses point the way home. Two nights of frost and already the hills are turning, curved green against the astonished morning. Sneezeweed and oxide daisies, not caring. I am a stranger making a living choice. Tan boys I do not know on their first proud harvest wave from their father's tractor. One smiles as we drive past, the other hollers, nigger, into cropped and fragrant air. So to me that sums up <laughs> my experience in Vermont. It's beautiful, but also... Maybe we should stop idealizing it um, in media too much, you know? Um, another aspect I wanted to talk about here with you 
is B&Bs. Um, and how Jerry's decision to try to take his partner to this B&B in Vermont, to me, was doomed from the start. And in fact, I welcome any feedback you all might have. I don't see how B&Bs are romantic. I have an aversion to them. I think they're kind of creepy. Um, I like to be able to come and go as I please. So this idea of being in this house-like space with strangers also around thin walls, stuff that looks like it came from Flea Market Flip or Antiques Road Show all around me, everything feeling like a, a freaking antique um, obligations or expectations for being at breakfast in the morning, um, conversation when I'm not trying to talk. I don't get B&Bs. So if somebody wants to try to help me understand it, feel free, but I just don't get it. It seems like the, the least romantic thing in the world. Um, I don't see how people make love in those spaces, like knowing pretty much everyone can hear that creaking bed from 1777. Um, I don't get it. I just don't get it. Um, so, yeah, let me know. Let me know what I'm missing. Because <laughs> I just <laughs> I don't get BBs at all. At all. Um, Airbnb, sure. My wife has helped me see the light with that. Um, it's great. But when another person is there, especially the owner, nah, no, I don't get it. Well, I think we've come to a great stopping place. This concludes another episode of Seinfeld Book Report. We'll be back soon. Um, we'll be in season two of the series, which is fantastic. A lot of great stuff ahead. I'm so looking forward to chatting with you about it. Um, I want to give shout outs to people who have helped strengthen this podcast in its inception. Thank you to my wife, Bailey Galen Moore. Um, thank you to Nicole Brown. Thank you, Charlie No. Thank you, Rhonda Knight. Um, thank you to everyone who's listened so far. I'm super glad you're here. And it's going to be fun. I'm actually looking to having guest stars in future episodes. Um, folks watching episodes and talking through stuff with me the world is our oyster it's going to be a great time and so until next time take care be well and i think we did pretty pretty, pretty good but i'm here joe i hope you niggas know what's going no super you whack niggas i'm gonna get my shout on go on